the Bibles to the book of Job. I appreciate that song and, and the idea behind it. I had mentioned before a sequential or a systematic reading of the Bible, and I encourage you to do so. Well, one of the things that I began doing at the time in which I started very, getting very serious about systematically reading through the Bible was I would pray Psalm 119.18 every morning before I did my study. Open thou mine eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. And I found God to be very faithful to answer that prayer as I prayed it in faith and as I prayed it genuinely desiring that God would show me uh, the truths of his word, he did so. And so uh, it is a very good practice that as we step into the word of God, studying the word of God, reading the word of God, desiring to know more of the word of God, that we would ask God through his Holy Spirit to reveal the word of God to us. You know, it has been a busy month for tragedy, hasn't it? I um, mentioned this, alluded to this a little bit earlier in the service, but really there hasn't been a week gone, that has gone by for better than a month where we have not heard of some senseless murder. And as we have added many of those people to our prayer list, we added the family of the police officer that was slain a couple weeks ago and um, there have been numerous other murders that we have heard of. Well, certainly this past Friday is no exception. We consider a tragedy of 28 people being killed, many of them young children, and the question comes into our mind, why? Why did... 28 people need to die in Connecticut. Why would such senseless violence happen? And as we begin to ask these questions, a question that often comes up in these times of tragedy is, how could a loving God allow these little children to die? How could a good God allow for such tragedy? When we consider this theme the theme of the goodness of God in the midst of the suffering of man, the goodness of God in the midst of tragedy, the goodness of God in the midst of sickness, the goodness of God in the midst of death, we are studying or considering a theme in theological circles called theodicy. Theodicy. It is the exploration of the goodness of God in the midst of man's suffering. And it asks a question. The main question being, how can we call God a good God when we see so much suffering in the world. Even among those who serve God faithfully, there is so much suffering in the world. How can we call God a good God? And that is the question that the book of Job wrestles with. That is the question that the entire book of Job is themed around. And today, we're going to learn some about this book of Job. It's a book sermon. As I do at the beginning of every series, I preach a book sermon. It will give us an overview of the entire book. And we're going to learn some of the lessons from Job from a broad perspective. These lessons will mirror the overarching purpose of the book of Job, that of theodicy. Now, some of the lessons that we'll learn throughout this series will be elaborated on uh, to various degrees. Some of them will be side lessons, but as we consider the entire book as a whole, it is surrounding the idea of the goodness of God in the midst of the suffering of man. 
And as we do so, as you can see if you have your notes there this morning, we're going to learn six lessons from this overview of the book of Job this morning. Six lessons from the overview of the book of Job. The book of Job is considered by conservative scholars to be the oldest written book of the Bible. Various characteristics of the book, which we'll get into as we come across them, would place its events as having occurred sometime around the time of Abraham's call in Genesis 12. He may have been a little bit before Abraham. He may have been a contemporary of Abraham. He probably would not have come too much later than Abraham. Now, as far as we're concerned, Job is a book of history, citing the facts surrounding the life of a real man named Job who went through real suffering at a definitive point and time in history. The authorship of the book is unknown, though many think that perhaps it was Moses who penned the account along with the Pentateuch during his years of ministry. It may have been, or it may have been prior to that, or uh, whatever the case may be, we really don't know. The author is not cited, however, it is in the scriptures, and we trust it to be inspired by God. The book of Job is written pri primarily in Hebrew poetry. We've talked about Hebrew poetry a little bit in Sunday school just this morning. We talked about Hebrew poetry when we were going through our Psalm 119 series on Tuesday evenings. Hebrew poetry is found scattered throughout the scripture. The book of Job is Hebrew poetry, mostly. The Psalms are, of course, poetry. We see Judges 5 as a song being Hebrew poetry. The Song of Moses in Exodus is Hebrew poetry. And whenever we come across Hebrew poetry, what we're dealing with is a rhyming scheme that's based upon thoughts. In, in English, poetry is based upon sound. We want our poetry to rhyme in sound. Roses are red, violets are blue, and then something that ends up rhyming with blue at the end of that, right? You, to, moo, whatever. Whatever the case may be, it's going to rhyme with blue because that's how, Hebrew, or that's how English poetry works. Hebrew poetry was not constrained by the rhyming of sounds. They had parallel thoughts, the rhyming of thought, the rhyming of theme, the rhyme of structure. If we could think of it this way, uh, Shakespeare often wrote in parallel thoughts. The ABBA type structures where A, B, and then B and A, the, the lines 3 and 4, were parallel in thought to lines 1 and 2. That's how Hebrew poetry is written. doesn't necessarily have to rhyme in sound, but always, always in thought. To that end, those same elements of Hebrew poetry that we have been learning about in our various other areas of study can apply to the book of Job very appropriately. Furthermore, the book, while it has many lessons and even some prophecy, is focused upon that central theme of theodicy. So let's look at these lessons together from the book of Job. We're going to try to hit the entire book today, which is an awful lot of chapters, so stay with me. Six lessons to learn. The first lesson we see this morning, lesson number one, suffering is never outside of God's control. Suffering is never outside of God's control. And we see this in chapters one through three. The beginning of our account introduces us to two scenes. One scene in heaven, one scene upon earth. We actually see the one on earth first. We meet a man named Job. Job was a man who, according to the beginning of the book, was righteous before God. A man of great piety, a man of great obedience. Job has been blessed by God with tremendous material blessing. 
He offers sacrifices daily to God. He intercedes on behalf of himself, on behalf of his family, and on behalf of his servants. This is a very pious man. This is a man who is called perfect and upright in his ways. This is a man who fears the Lord and eschews or rejects evil. He is a good man. He is a righteous man. He is a pious man. He is a godly man. That introduces us to Job. Then the scene switches to that of heaven. In heaven we have God and the sons of God. The sons of God being a descriptive term that encompasses all spiritual beings that God has created. We'll talk about that more as we get to it. Now among the sons of God there is one called Satan. Satan in the Hebrew is literally a word that simply means adversary. He is the adversary of both God and man. Satan has been, according to the scriptures, walking to and fro. He tells God this, as God asks him what he's been doing. He says, I've been going throughout the earth. Peter tells us that he walks to and fro as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And God challenges Satan. God asks him, have you considered my servant Job? For there is not a man like him, a man that fears the Lord and eschews evil. And Satan says, well, sure, I've considered him, but there's a problem, God. You've put a hedge of protection about him. I can't touch him. But I tell you what, if I could, if you were not protecting him, if I could, if I could bring trials into his life, I guarantee you he would curse you to your face. God says, okay, I will allow you to touch all that he has, but don't touch him. But you can touch all that he has. Satan says, wonderful. So he goes, and then our scene switches back to earth. We see Job, and Job is, is present one day, and his servants come up to him. And as we read through the passage, we find out that all of his flocks, all of his herds, all of his servants, all of his children even, his ten children, have all been killed. Some by natural disaster, some by enemies. It's all been taken from him. He goes from a man that has great wealth and great possessions, and in one day, one thing after the next, it's all taken from him. The response of Job is found in Job 1, 20 and 21. <coughs> then Job arose and rent his mantle and shaved his head and fell down upon the ground and worshipped and said, Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And verse 22 tells us in all this, Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. Well, Job passed the test. He didn't curse God. His faith stood. We enter into Job chapter 2 and we find the scene back in heaven. Satan comes before God. God says, where have you been? He said, from walking to and fro. First Peter tells us, seeking whom he may devour. God says, have you considered my servant Job? For there's none like him. That fears the Lord and shews evil. And Satan says, ah, tell you what. Sure, he, he made it through losing all of his possessions. But possessions are just possessions. I'll tell you what. Let me touch him. Let me touch his health. And I guarantee you, he will curse you to your face. Skin for skin, he says. A man loves himself too much. When you take away his health, or allow me to take away his health, he will curse you. God says, go for it. So Satan comes and Job is smitten with great boils. Painful. If you read 
what is going on with Job. It is, it is almost, I mean, it's graphic, it's disgusting, it's painful, it's awful. Job is in constant pain from, from the top of his head to the soles of his feet. He's got boils on the bottoms of his feet. He can hardly even walk. He, he can't even put clothes on because just the clothes touching the skin is agonizing. I don't know if you've ever gotten a burn, like a sunburn, and that sunburn has been so bad that you just look at that t-shirt in the morning and you say, I, I don't even want to put that shirt on. Because you know when you, go, when you put that shirt on, the skin is so sensitive that, that as soon as that shirt touches the skin, it's just that sharp pain that shoots through you. And you, you know you need to put some aloe on it and, and it just hurts and, and you're trying to put it on and it hurts so bad. And, and, and that's, that's, not even that, that's not even comparable to the kind of pain that Job must have been going through with these terrible boils all over his body. The scriptures say that he was taking pot shirts, pieces of pots, and he was scraping off all of the pus that was coming out of these boils. It's a terribly graphic scene. Very painful. Very uncomfortable. Job's response to this terrible tragedy is seen through the, the um, discouragement of his wife. Job 2, 9 and 10. His wife says to him, Dost thou still retain thine integrity? Curse God and die. His response is this. Thou speakest as one of the foolish women speaketh. What? Shall we receive good at the hand of God? And shall we not receive evil? Then the scriptures say, In all this did not Job sin with his lips. So in a matter of time, Job has lost his family, his possessions, and his health. The scriptures describe him as sitting on a heap of ashes, dust upon his head in mourning, not able to do anything, hardly able to move, probably had lost his appetite long ago, tremendously difficult circumstances. But you know, just because Job did not sin against God and because Job maintained his faith, this does not mean that the suffering that he was going through did not take its toll. We look at the situation of Job from above, we know that it is God who has allowed Job's suffering. We know that it is God who is closely monitoring Job's suffering. We know that God specifically commanded Satan that he may not take his life. So we know Job is not in danger of death. And we know that Job's suffering is not a result of sin. We remember from Job 1 that Job was an upright man. A man perfect and upright in his ways that feared the Lord and eschewed evil. We know that this is not a consequence of his sin. We know that this is not a consequence of wrongdoing. That this is God proving him. That this is God using him to bring God glory. But you know what? For all that that we know, Job doesn't know that at all. Job does not have the advantage of seeing what we have seen in Job 1.1. Job does not know what transpired in heaven between Satan and God. He can know by faith, but he didn't read it. We read it. It's as if we're watching a play. Have you ever watched a play? And we know all the behind-the-scenes stuff in a play because we saw it happen, but the protagonist doesn't know what all this behind-the-scenes stuff was. He doesn't know the plan that the bad guy is making. And so as the protagonist is going through this play and he is making decisions and we're saying, no, don't do that. They've got a plan in place. They know what's going on. It's similar. We're looking at this from above. We're seeing what's happening from both the heavenly side and the earthly side. 
So we can know, God, we, we can look down and we can say, Job, everything's in control. God's in control. But you know, it's very different when these things happen to us. It's very different when the trials and the troubles come upon us. See, because we don't know specifically what's transpired in heaven. We can only see through eyes of faith. However, Job, as we see from Job 2, 9 and 10, was very faithful to justify God in the midst of his suffering. He justified God before his wife. He recognized that he had not done anything wrong. He knew that his heart was right before God. It's not to say that he was sinless, but he was a man who had done right before God. He was right in the eyes of God. He had fellowship with God. He had obeyed God's word, and he knew this. He knew that he had an advocate in God, and he was confident that God was still on his side. Yet Job still found himself in great sorrow. And so we recognize that it is okay for us in this life to have sorrow. We will, in fact, in this life have sorrow. Though we will never be hopeless. Sorrow, but not despair. So the overarching emphasis of this introductory material in chapters 1 through 3 is to remind us of God's sovereignty in the midst of man's suffering. That God is always in control. That nothing is outside of God's control. Ladies and gentlemen, we will face in our lives trials, temptations, difficulties, pain, loss. It will bring sorrow. It will bring confusion. And in times of sorrow and confusion and pain and loss and trial and temptation, it is natural for a man to ask why. It is natural for us to seek tangible reasons and to desire justification. When trouble hits us and our loved ones, we often fail to see the reasons fail to see the justification, and so we are tempted to then conclude that there are no reasons. This leads us to think that God is not in control, but has instead left us to time, to chance, to circumstance, and we've simply been dealt a bad hand. Some people get lucky, other people seem to draw the short straw. But that's not how life is, and the book of Job is Desirous to teach us very clearly that there is a God and that He is in control. If you could only see what was happening in heaven, you would find that your circumstances and the circumstances of those whom you love are very much before God's eyes. It is natural and often unavoidable for us to be touched by our circumstances, it is natural for us to feel sorrowful. But our circumstances must never be allowed to override our faith. That which we see in this life must never blind us to that which we know about the unseen God. And so we live this life by faith. And we're going to come back to some of these concepts as we continue to learn our lessons. The first lesson this morning, suffering is never outside of God's control. The next lesson we'll learn in chapters 4 through 27, a very large chunk here. Material circumstances are not a reflection of personal righteousness. Material circumstances are not a reflection of personal righteousness. Now, in chapters 4 through 24, we're going to learn a great number of lessons that are outside of this one theme. But this is the overarching theme. Near the end of chapter 2 and into chapter 3, we see three companions of Job arrive, according to the text. Eliphaz, the Temanite, Bildad, the Shuhite, and Zophar, the Naamathite. They arrive with the purpose, according to Job 2.11, of 
mourning with Job and comforting Job. In fact, throughout these many chapters, they are called Job's comforters. Job was sitting on the ash mound, dirt upon his head when they arrived. When they saw him, they looked upon him, and the scriptures tell us that he was so disfigured from this physical, from these boils, that they could not even recognize him. They rent their clothes, they sprinkled dust upon their own heads, and they wept when they saw Job. But then something strange transpired, and it lays the foundation for much of the remaining book, for certainly these next 27 or 23 chapters of the book. They didn't say anything. They kept their mouths shut. How strange. These men come from afar. They journey to their friend because they've heard that he's in mourning. And they've heard that he's in affliction. And when they get there to comfort him, they don't comfort him. When they get there to bring him words of solace and words of comfort... They sit down on the ground and they are silent for a whole week. Why? Well, the reason was because when they looked at Job, when they considered all that he lost and when they saw how disfigured he was from the pain and from the the boils that are all over his body, they could only come to one conclusion and it was that Job must be a great sinner. And therefore, he must have brought this trouble upon himself. Have you ever been in a place where you've looked at somebody and their sin has brought them to a consequence and it's been difficult to feel sorry for them because you see what has transpired in their lives as a reward of their unrighteousness? Well, that is the mindset of these three friends. They have... No means by which to comfort him anymore because as they look at his circumstances, they say, wow, what a great sinner. He must have done something terrible. They attribute his suffering to his sin. And that is the theme of the next 23 chapters of the book. Each man, beginning presumably with the oldest and proceeding through to the youngest, takes turns telling Job how much of a sinner he is. And exhorting him to repent of his sin before God. Each man's thought process is that Job's circumstances were so terrible that there's simply no way that God would allow, a good God would allow such terrible circumstances upon a righteous man. There's no way that such a good God would allow a righteous man to lose everything that he has. There's no way that a good God would allow a righteous man to have such terrible ailments of health. There's no way. So Job, you must be a terrible sinner and you need to repent before God. And Job spends these chapters responding to these men, continually affirming his innocence and his righteousness before God and justifying the fact that no, he has not done anything knowingly wrong that as far as he is concerned, he is right before God. And that in fact, these three men who are accusing him can't even name one sin that he has committed that is in his life that would cause these circumstances. They can't even pinpoint a sin. They say, it's okay, we don't need to pinpoint a sin. Your your terrible circumstances pinpoint that there must be something. Job was a man, as we know, of personal righteousness and piety. It cannot be said that Job was a man of unconfessed sin because we read that he wasn't. 
It cannot be claimed that Job had many poor decisions in his life that led him to his suffering because we see that he was not a man of poor decisions. He was a man of wisdom. Job was a man who was allowed by God to go through the greatest depths of human suffering exclusively to prove his faithfulness and to glorify God. You say, well, pastor, that sounds terribly unfair. We'll get there in another lesson. Lesson number one, suffering is never outside of God's control. Lesson number two, material circumstances are not a reflection of personal righteousness. Job's material suffering did not reflect a a life of sin in this particular case. Lesson number three, wisdom is an outworking of faith, not reason. Wisdom is an outworking of faith, not reason. In chapter 28, after all of the many backs and forths, and we'll go through uh, two main sections of back and forth between them. If you, if you have your outline, you can see that. I handed out those outlines um, this past month. So if you have those, it'd be good to keep those with you as we're going through the book. Job spends chapter 28 expounding upon the nature of wisdom. Each man of these four men has claimed the understanding of age and experience to assert the validity of his argument. They say, Job, we're just as old as you. You're no more experienced than we are. This is what we're saying. And Job says, well, I'm just as old as you. And I'm just as experienced as you are. And this is what I'm saying. And so they're all claiming age and understanding and experience as the validity for their arguments. But Job reminded all of those listening that wisdom is sourced not in experience, nor is it sourced in circumstance, but rather... Wisdom is sourced in God. Wisdom comes only as we, perhaps through time, perhaps through age, perhaps through experience, but nevertheless quite distinct from age and experience, learn of God and live out a life that God has taught us through his character. And so in Job 28, 28, we find these words. Behold, The fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to depart from evil is understanding. You know, it has often been said that experience is the best teacher. I even mentioned this not too long ago in one of my sermons. This philosophy is very, very true from a purely human perspective. If I want to really know how to change the oil in my car, if I want to know how to ride a bike, If I want to know how to read a book, I need to spend time learning and practicing those skills. The more first-hand knowledge I have, the better I'm going to be. I have learned personally as a pastor that the degree to which I can give people advice about things such as raising children are limited by my experience. I can give people theoretical ideas about how it is they should raise their children about what they need to do in regard to various aspects of child rearing. But the fact is, my children are one year old and I have only one year of experience raising children. There's a lot that I have to learn. And there's a lot that wisdom is going to teach me through years of experience as my thinking is corrected and I realize the shortcomings of my ways. But you know, when it comes to biblical wisdom... When it comes to the wisdom that Job is speaking of here, as well as with many other spiritual virtues, experience is not always the best teacher. In fact, there's many times where we don't want the experiences that biblical wisdom brings. We have all known men 
men of many physical years of age, men who are old physically, they are, they are many years old, but lack spiritual wisdom. Perhaps you've even known some people who are relatively young, and yet in their youth they possess wisdom seemingly far beyond their years of living. The reason being because spiritual wisdom is not simply sourced in that which we have experienced or how long we have lived. Spiritual wisdom is sourced in faith, not reason. To that end, the man who is willing to understand God, understand his character and his word, and obey God, regardless of his age, is the man who possesses the wisdom of God. The man who applies the character of God to the circumstances of his life is the man who is applying wisdom to those circumstances, even when experience and reason perhaps try to convince him otherwise. And so, true wisdom is an outworking not necessarily of reason, of experience, of age, but of faith. Lesson number four, as we continue moving right along this morning. It is God that justifies man's actions. It is God that justifies man's actions. Job will speak for uh, three more chapters, 29, 30, and 31. In chapter 32 we are introduced to a fourth comforter, a man that we didn't even know was around until just here in, in chapter 32, and his name was Elihu. In typical er, Middle Eastern fashion, Elihu had kept his mouth shut because he was much younger than everyone else. Therefore, he was esteemed to have far less wisdom. And so, as was typical, the young men would keep their mouth shut and they'd listen. And they're just supposed to sit and listen as the older men expound upon the wisdom of their years. Very typical in Middle Eastern culture. Very common. And so if, if things had not gone as they did, Elihu, we wouldn't even have known he was there. As a matter of fact, for all we know, there may have been a bunch of other young men standing around as well. The scriptures don't mention that. But what I'm saying is these men normally kept their mouths shut. But Elihu gets to a point where he is angry He's heard each of these men speaking, all four of them, and he is very angry. And so he cannot help but speak out in his wrath at statements, both of these three so-called comforters, as well as Job's statements. And he begins with Job. And he sympathizes with Job's contentions of righteousness. He says, Job, perhaps you are righteous. I am not going to say that you're a sinner because I don't know. Elihu exercises some great wisdom here. However, he states very eloquently that what Job is doing that he ought not be doing is justifying himself. See, even if Job is righteous and is thus justified in his statements, it is his duty, regardless of his circumstances, to not justify himself, but to justify God. Statement could be made this way. Let men go to the grave falsely believing in my own sinfulness. But let no man fail to recognize that regardless of my circumstances, God is good, God is just, and God is righteous in all his ways. Do you remember way back at the beginning of Job, as I was telling it, that in Job 2, 9 and 10, his wife comes and says, just curse God and die. And he says, should not God, is God give, going to give us good? Should not he also give us evil? See, Job there was, was right on target. He, he didn't justify himself. 
He didn't try to justify what was happening. He simply said, God is just in what he is doing. God is good. God is just. God is righteous. But then these man, men come and they're supposed to be comforting him. And they just keep pummeling him with this sin that's it's non-existent in his life. You're a sinner. You're a sinner. You're a sinner. You're a sinner. And these people who were supposed to be comforting completely got him off track. And instead of comforting him and mourning with him, they drew him into this feeling like he needed to start justifying himself. No, I'm not. I'm not what you're telling me I am. I'm not this, this, this man who is in the depths of sin. I am not this. And it drew him into justifying himself. And Elihu says, that's not for you to do. You don't need to do this. Justify God. We must take very much care here to remind you again that Job's self-justification was, in a word, justified. He was righteous in the eyes of God. He was a man who never once charged God falsely. But he, got, he, he lost his perspective because of the tremendous pummeling that he was taking by these so-called comforters. Elihu then rebukes these three comforters for failing to accomplish their stated purpose. Rather than comfort Job, they judged him based upon incomplete information. They assumed upon his character, they assumed upon his actions, and they condemned him for that which he did not do in light of the circumstances that God had brought into his life. Have you ever done that before? Have you ever looked at a man's circumstances and condemned him before you even knew him? Have you ever looked at a man on the side of the road begging and just assumed that he was a man that was on drugs or he was a man that was a poor steward of his money and that's why he was there on the side of the road or he was a man who probably had some alcohol addiction? Well, it's possible. But did you ever assume upon that man's circumstances before you knew them? Did you ever condemn that man of sin before you knew that he even had any sin? That's what Elihu, that's what Elihu was was condemning these three friends, these three comforters for, and that is what these three comforters were doing. They were accusing Job of non-existent sins because they saw his outward circumstances. And it was, as we'll see a little bit later in the book, a sin on the part of these three so-called comforters. How often are our words and actions, is a second question, attempts to justify our own righteousness in the eyes of man instead of justifying God. As we consider Elihu's rebukes, as we consider the responses of Job and the comforters, we are often tempted towards these same ends. We need to remember, folks, that we answer to God alone in areas of sin and righteousness. That no one can assume upon our sin that our justification for our actions lies with God and with the Word of God. Now, if we're blatantly offending the Word of God and the character of God, well, yes, there is sin. But our justification is before God, not before man. In chapters 38 through 42, we see our fifth lesson. Our first lesson, suffering is never outside of God's control. Our second lesson, material circumstances are not necessarily a reflection of personal righteousness. Our third lesson, wisdom is an outworking of faith, not reason. Our fourth lesson, it is God. 
that justifies man's actions. We do not need to justify our own. Our fifth lesson, God answers to no man for man's circumstances. Following Elihu's speech, God himself comes and answers Job directly. Now, if I could sum up God's speeches to Job in one phrase, it would be this. Where were you? I think everything that God is telling Job is summed up in those three words. Where were you? Look with me if you have your Bibles open to Job 38. I'll read it. But Job 38 verses 1 through 7. This is the beginning of God speaking to Job. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkeneth counsel by words without knowledge? Gird up now thy loins like a man, for I will demand of thee, and answer thou me. Where wast thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare if thou hast understanding. Who hath laid the measure thereof, if thou knowest? Or who hath stretched the line upon it? Whereupon the foundations of, uh, thereof fastened? Excuse me. Whereupon are the foundations thereof fastened? Or who laid the cornerstone thereof? When the morning stars sang together. And all the sons of God shouted for joy. God peppers Job with question after question that reveals to Job that his personal righteousness, which is valid, is nothing compared to God's righteousness. God shows Job that his requests for satisfaction, as we'll see, Job says, if only God would answer me so I could ask him, so I could respond to him. God shows Job that any request on his part for satisfaction in the midst of his own suffering is short-sighted and compared with God's greatness. I hope you know that you are special to God. I hope you know that God loves you. In fact, as we consider the season that we're in, we recognize as Christmas comes a week from Tuesday that God loved us so much that he sent his only begotten son. And his only begotten son died upon the cross for our sins that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And yet I hope you understand as well that though God loves you, you are yet a pretty insignificant piece of the broad scope of history. That you are a small speck on a small speck in a very vast universe. The psalmist put it this way in Psalm 8, When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy hands, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man? that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him. Certainly God is mindful of us, and we thank the Lord for that, but we are still very small in the midst of a very large creation. Your life is but a few moments in history. And the God who made it all, the God who stands in control of it all, owes you nothing. He owes you no explanation. He owes you no satisfaction all that he has is given to you by his grace God having given to us what we do not deserve and the only obligations God holds are those obligations which he has placed upon himself nowhere in scripture is God obligated to explain his actions to us a great tragedy occurred on Friday many people are asking why why is an okay question We can look at a man who had issues. We can look at the sin of this world. We can look at a society that has degraded so much morally that these sorts of things are almost encouraged 
by atheism, almost encouraged by the science that's being taught in our public schools, the you to goo science that says you're all just random chance processes anyway, the Darwinistic ideas that, that the weak will pass away and only the strong survive. All of these ideas permeating the minds of people have brought people to the point where these things happen. Sin brings these things to, hap- to, to occur. But when we start saying, why God? How could you allow this to happen? We are outside of our scope. God is not obligated to answer us. God is not obligated to explain himself to us. And Job 38-40 through 40 makes it very clear that God is not obligated to us to explain his reasoning, to explain his ways, and to explain his doings. One final lesson this morning. Final lesson found in Job 42, verses 7 through 17, and it is this. God's favor is upon the righteous. God's favor is upon the righteous. You know, it's a difficult book, the book of Job can be a book that can lead us to some measure of discouragement until the end. has a happy ending. Job ends, having gone through this great trial, having never once accused God falsely, having never once sinned before God, and he finds himself, though he was rebuked for his thoughts of self-justification, yet in humility he repented before God, He gave God the glory that was due unto his name. God rebuked the three companions, Eliphaz, Zophar, and Bildad, and told Job to pray for them. They repented of their sin. Now God did not rebuke the words of Elihu. We recognize as Elihu speaks that he is speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Elihu testifies of that himself. When we get there, we'll talk about that. But as all of this happened and transpired, God then turned Job's cursings into blessings and Job was blessed as he had never been blessed before. Job 42 verse 10 says, And the Lord turned the captivity of Job when he prayed for his friends. Also the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. And so our final lesson reminds us that suffering is but a temporal condition on the journey of the righteous. Certainly there are no guarantees in this life of luxury. There are no guarantees that we will find what Job found. Great wealth, great fruitfulness, great abundance. But the spiritual promises of joy and contentment, those spiritual treasures being laid up in heaven will follow all those who serve the Lord in sincerity. The fruit of righteousness, that which we memorized in Jeremiah 17 and we're holding ourselves accountable to in Sunday school at this time, that which we can see from Psalm 1, that which we remember from Psalm 30, all of these verses that we've memorized and we've learned and we've considered, the realities of the fruit of righteousness in a man's life are very present upon those who serve the Lord. As we walk through the book of Job over these next several months, keep these lessons in mind. You know, it's always a temptation as we dig deep into God's word to lose perspective on the whole. But let's do our best to avoid this. Keep these lessons handy. Keep your outline to the book handy. But also do your best to place yourself in Job's situation. For some, we're going through trials. We're going through troubles. 
Tremendous health difficulties. Tremendous family difficulties. Tremendous loss and pain. For others, we can only understand it by hearing, reading, and experiencing it through others. But as we learn of these truths, we can comfort ourselves, prepare ourselves, and by God's grace, comfort others as well. So as we close, I think, again, to the tragedy in Connecticut. Was it terrible? Yes. Is it a manifestation of how far gone this nation is from God? Yes. But was God in control? Yes. Does this make God responsible? No. Man's sin is responsible, but God is in control. Does God owe us an explanation for what happened? No. He does not owe us anything. How should we respond? Sympathy? Yes. Love? Yes. Support? Yes. But above all, we should justify the goodness of our God. We should justify the righteousness of our God. We should justify God in the midst of tragedy. Perhaps you're going through your own trial. Health. Family. The loss of a loved one. You ask why. You wonder if perhaps some sin is in your life that's causing your suffering. You question God's control or His goodness. Let the book of Job teach you. Draw your mind and your heart not through reason but through faith to a place where you can again justify God's goodness in the midst of your suffering and pain. And then by God's grace, as others are going through the same, justify God's goodness in the midst of their suffering and pain. Let's pray.